Well, good morning. It is uh, a privilege to be with you all for a number of different reasons. As uh, Pastor Daniel mentioned, he is my brother-in-law. His sister Katie uh, is my wife, and you'll meet her. Well, if you hang around for a few minutes, she'll be here. And uh, so I'm grateful to be in this congregation. I pray for you all regularly. Even if I don't know most of you, I pray for you, pray for your pastors, and pray for all that's going on here. And I'm excited. I was excited to see the video from Brian in Cameroon because he's he's kind of an indirect partner of what we're doing. You you heard him mention they may be partnering with the extension of Bethlehem College and Seminary in Yande, Cameroon. My colleagues, Diodene Tom, and we're planting an extension site across another ocean. So there to the east across the Atlantic, we're going to the west across the Pacific, but we're really partner organizations. We are spreading the mission of Bethlehem College and Seminary, where I teach right now in Minnesota. And our goal is to have a beachhead for theological training in the Hawaiian Islands, as you heard my friends on the video talking about. I'll I'll say more about that in a few minutes. But part of our mission at Bethlehem is to spread. You may have heard John Piper say his mission is to spread a passion for the supremacy of God in all things for the joy of all peoples through Jesus Christ. And so that's what we want to do. We aren't interested in growing a massive seminary in one place. Instead, we want to take theological training to places in the world that don't have access to that kind of training like Cameroon, like Hawaii, like Samoa, like Vanuatu, like a bunch of other Pacific islands and beyond. Because we think this is, what part, this is part of what Jesus has commissioned his church to do as we proclaim the gospel to the nations. Not just evangelize, but make disciples who will be well-trained and able to make more disciples and establish churches. So that's what we are aiming toward, praying toward. And I'm excited to see how God might bring our paths together through partnerships in Cameroon. And it's my prayer that some of you will be able to come with us on a trip to one of the Pacific Islands in the coming years, whether that's Samoa, Vanuatu, other places. Uh, I want us to consider one of the Old Testament roots of this great mission that we've been considering already, this great mission of God as the servant, our Lord Jesus Christ, goes to the nations. And our text that Daniel read gives us a solution. But before we get to the solution, I want to read the end of Isaiah 41 to remind us of the problem. So Isaiah 41, verse 27, if you just look up the page from the text we read a moment ago, Isaiah 41, 27 says, I, this is the Lord speaking, I was the first to say to Zion, behold, here they are, and I give to Jerusalem a herald of good news. But when I look, there is no one. Among these, there is no counselor who, when I ask, gives an answer. Behold, they are all a delusion. Their works are nothing. Their metal images are empty wind. 
So the problem is that they were looking to idols. They're looking to other gods for salvation. And the Gentile nations had no solutions for them. This is where we all are when left on our own, without Christ, we too are looking to other things for salvation and hope. Whether we're talking about literal idols of wood and stone or anything other than the Lord himself, we look for salvation in all different places. But into this problem steps the servant of the Lord. And that's where we begin in our text. As we launch into this text, we'll be reminded of the mission of the servant and our part in that great mission. So let me pray for us one more time, and then we'll launch into this. Father, I do pray that you would give us eyes to see clearly what your word is instructing us in, in hearts that are submissive to what you are calling us to do as individuals, as families, and as a church. So guide us, we pray. Amen. So this part of Isaiah, if you're familiar with the book, uh, begins what is often called the servant songs. And these great prophecies, when God announces how he will to end their captivity, to remove their sin once and for all. And he would do it through his servant. And we could spend a lot of time talking about how scribes and scholars have uh, debated who this servant is, but we can just cut to the chase as we already have. The servant is Jesus Christ, the promised one. A few chapters later in Isaiah 53, a text that's familiar probably to many of us, says that the servant is pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace is on him. By his wounds we are healed. So the servant is the one who saves God's people. So the servant is Jesus, but notice who is speaking here. Throughout this section, God the Father is talking about his son, saying, this is my beloved one. That language might be familiar to you if you've read the Gospels recently. God the Father, delighting in the servant, his beloved Son. And then he sends his Spirit on the Son to empower him for his mission. So you have God the Father calling God the Son. That sounds a lot like the Gospels, particularly Jesus' baptism. If you remember this scene In Matthew 3, when Jesus was baptized, he came up from the water, and the heavens are open to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest upon him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. So in the Gospels, Jesus' baptism is the beginning of his public ministry, kind of like a commissioning service. When Jesus launches out and begins to proclaim the kingdom of God, through his teaching and his miracles, and these wonderful prophetic actions that we see throughout the Gospels, ultimately leading to his death and victorious resurrection. 
I think Jesus' baptism in the Gospels kind of plays the same role that verse 1 does in our text. Right? Same things are happening. The Father is declaring that the, the Son is His beloved one and pouring out the Spirit on Him to empower Him for mission. It's almost like the Old and New Testaments fit together. Imagine that. The Holy Spirit, the Son, and the Father all working together in this great work of redemption. So, to our point here, the action of the tridation of the mission of the church to the nations. It's the foundation of the servant's mission. At the end of verse 1, it says, He will bring justice to the nations. This word justice is something we all long for, but we don't always understand what it means. So in, in the context, when, I, when I'm teaching students how to read the Bible, I tell them the meaning of a word is determined by the context, right? So let's continue to look at the context here to think about what this justice looks like. We already saw in chapter 41 the, this allusion to the nations and their idols. These idols have been put on trial. And part of what it means for the servant to bring justice is to reveal the truth of what these idols actually are. They're hopeless saviors. And it reveals who God truly is. He is the judge, the only true savior. And as we keep reading, we see more about the servant's mission explained in verses 2 through 4. Notice all that the servant will I allowed. A bruised reed he will not break, a faintly burning wick he will not quenched. He will not grow faint or discouraged, even through suffering. The mission of the servant is victory through Suffering. This isn't a bombastic, self-promoting, triumphalistic ministry as opposed to what Israel might have been looking for when they saw the Babylonian kings, the Assyrian kings, declaring their own military might and power and glory. The servant wins the victory through suffering. Rather than claiming his own rights, he lays them down for us. His suffering, as we said, is described more in chapter 53. His suffering is the way that he accomplishes his mission. So through the surprising suffering of the servant, the mission of God is accomplished. And don't lose sight of the fact that this, this is the mission of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit together. The Father has sent the Son, who is empowered by the Spirit, to suffer for the sake of God's people in order to establish justice on the earth. So another part of this justice is that sin is dealt with once and for all. Sin must be dealt with either by our own suffering eternal suffering, or by the suffering of Jesus on our behalf. 
So justice will be established on the earth. Look to Jesus who suffers for you. Look to Jesus. Turn and trust in him. So the suffering of the servant results in true justice being established on earth when all of the rights will be wronged. And God's will is done on earth as it is in heaven. And this justice, this reign of God over the whole earth, isn't just for Israel. It doesn't only affect one country in one place. Rather, it goes to the nations. At the end of verse 4, this phrase that the ESV translates as, the coastlands wait for his law. Is translated in the NIV as, in his teaching, I think this expresses the point maybe just a little bit better, in that the islands, the, the remotest places in earth, find their hope in the servant rather than in the idols to whom they are looking. So the word coastland or islands like I said, it, it, it's talking about the, the furthest reaches of the earth. Maybe immediately talking about islands in the Med Mediterranean Sea, like Cyprus, maybe some of the Greek islands. But the point is really that the, the mission of the servant extends to the farthest places of the earth. Islands like Great Britain and Ireland. Islands like what we have in the Caribbean, and islands in the Pacific. All of these islands look to the servant. All of these islands need the gospel. And so next week, you're going to hear more about one missionary who took the gospel to these islands. You see, in the first half of the 19th century, really throughout the 19th century, there was this wave of the modern missions movement starting with men like William, who probably many of you have heard about. But there was also a wave of missionaries that swept through the Pacific Islands. So in about 1800, the first missionaries arrived in Tahiti. In 1820, 200 years ago, in March, the first missionaries came to the Hawaiian Islands. In 1830, the first missionaries arrived in Samoa, in Fiji. In 1839, the first missionaries landed in the New Hebrides Islands, now known as Vanuatu. And these men, these two missionaries, were killed within minutes of stepping ashore. And that didn't stop a Scotsman named John Patton from seeking to take the gospel to the New Hebrides. So I... I Pastor Daniel reminded me of some of John Patton's writing recently. I've been skimming through it, and so I'm not going to steal his thunder for next week. But uh, I, I will say, John Patton, uh, by the grace of God, lived in the New Hebrides Islands and Vanuatu for decades, so that 30 or 40 years after he arrived there, the New Testament had been translated. 
And they were missionaries on 25 of the 30 islands in the New Hebrides. What gave John Patton, Hiram Bingham, Adoniram Judson, William Carey, Hudson Taylor, what, what gave these men the courage, the certainty to continue on even when threatened by death, even when they knew that the missionaries who came before them were killed almost as soon as they arrived there. How could they be so crazy to go to those places? Well, they knew that they were not on their own mission. As we saw in verses 1 through 4 here, they saw that this is the mission of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So it's not something they made up for their own glory. They were on the mission that God himself had revealed in his word. But I think that Patton also understood the confidence that we can have in God's sovereign power as we go on this mission. So if we can say verses 1 through 4 points us to the, the Trinitarian 5 through 9 describes the certainty of that mission's outcome. These verses give us a rock-solid confidence in our mission. Because it's not actually our mission. It's not mine. It's not faith churches. It's not... Bethlehem's, it's not any denomination's mission. It doesn't belong to any one pastor or individual or school or group. This is the mission of the Lord who made heaven and earth, the one who gives life to every living thing. He remains committed to redeeming the creation, to redeeming people from every tribe and tongue. So our text says he made the whole earth. He created the heavens and stretched them out. He spread out the earth and what comes from it. He gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. So God's sovereign power in creating all things and sustaining all things teaches us that it's to do. Right? None of his purposes either in creation or in redemption, will fail. This is repeated again in verse 8, along with another reason why the worldwide advance of God's kingdom is a certainty. He says, I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Remember at the end of chapter 41, the idols of the nations are a delusion. Their works are nothing. Their metal images are empty wind. They are powerless to save. If you're looking for the, to them for deliverance from anything, any threat, any danger, they're going to let you down. But not so the Lord. He will accomplish His purposes. He will keep His promises. And He will do it in a way that gets Him all the glory. And this isn't some kind of 
sinful pride or bragging? Because the Lord is the most glorious, most deserving being in all the universe. The greatest thing he could do for us is reveal himself to us and call us to delight in him. So, the proclamation of the gospel, the proclamation to find your refuge in our triune God, it's the most loving thing we can do for anybody because no idol can satisfy us, no idol can save us, nothing in this world will accomplish what God has created us for. But the Lord promises to display his glory, not just in Israel, but in all the nations through the ministry of the servant, Jesus Christ. Because the Lord is all-powerful, because the Lord knows that the greatest good in all the universe is for his glory to be on display for our joy, he accomplishes his purposes. None of them will fail. And so what are his purposes here in these verses? Verse 6, I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people. That is to say, a light for the nations. Remember, again, this is the Father speaking to the Son, the servant. They're talking about their eternal commitment to accomplish these worldwide purposes of redemption. They're talking about the task of global missions, making not now disciples. This is the mission of the church, but we can ultimately say it's the mission of God. And since it is the mission of God, it will not fail. The servant, it says, will open eyes that are blind and set prisoners free. This is very similar to Isaiah 61, the text that Jesus stands up in Luke 4 to proclaim the beginning of his ministry. In Isaiah 61, it says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, and to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus' mission is to bring the gospel to earth in his own person, his glorious works. And when we, church, proclaim the good news to the nations, We're continuing the mission of the servant as more and more people submit to his rule. More and more people become his disciples. So the presence of Jesus in his kingdom is really, I I think it's the the new thing that the Lord promises in verse 9. Everything that's going on in Isaiah, the first half of the book is full of judgment indicting both Israel and the nations for their failure to remain faithful as the Lord intended, which led to judgment and captivity and exile in Babylon. But the Lord is promising a new thing, a new covenant, when he would keep his promise to finally deal with the sin of his people, pour out the Spirit through Christ, when Father, Son, and Holy Spirit would work to accomplish this great work of redemption. Not just for Israel, 
but for the nations. Not just for the church in Michigan or Minnesota or America, but for all the nations. So for centuries now, the Lord Jesus has been accomplishing his mission as the islands who hope in him have that hope fulfilled. So we're called to be a part of that great mission. Like John Patton, who went to places that no one else was willing to go for the sake of the gospel. And so we pray for more Pattons to rise up and go to those places where no one else has gone. But we also stand on the shoulders of men like Patton who have taken the gospel to those places. To this day, by God's grace, the gospel is proclaimed in Vanuatu and many other Pacific Islands. In spite of the legacy of Christianity that's been there for two centuries now, in many of those places, there, there's no options for theological training. I was in Hawaii about a month ago, and I sat with a Samoan pastor. So he's from American Samoa, which is south and west of Hawaii. Um, and he said, I don't know of any options for young Samoan men in Hawaii or back home to be trained. And I know that's the case in many of these Pacific Islands. And so because of this, many of these places are on a path toward nominal Christianity, the health and wealth gospel, or even returning to tribal religions. So in order to continue the cause that John Patton and many others like him gave their lives for, we have to keep working to provide unreached people groups. But we must commit to train those who need training. The church in many of these islands is less than two centuries old, which sounds old to us Americans. But think of the fact that the gospel came to the British Isles in maybe the fourth century, and then no options for theological training were available there for about seven centuries after that. So it's actually relatively recent. There's a lot of work to be done. The point I'm making, the task of Christian missions is to make disciples. And this requires serious long-term commitment to training, and which is why I'm so thankful for all that's going on in Cameroon. To hear your partner, Brian, all that he's doing there. And the fact that he's thinking of teaming up with uh, our Bethlehem guys on the ground there is exciting to me. And I'm, I'm going to be praying that God would drive that partnership deeply together. We must seek to train pastors who can teach others also, as Paul tells us in 2 Timothy 2.2. 2. John Patton wrote that he and his fellow missionaries committed never to withdraw until all of those islands were occupied for Jesus. So we want to stand on their shoulders in all the places that these missionaries have gone ahead of us 
and seek to occupy the Pacific Islands, Cameroon, places all over the world with long-term solid options for theological training. We want to come after them, support the work that they've done, help train pastors who can strengthen other churches, equip future pastors, help churches in those places remain doctrinally faithful while reaching their own culture and reaching other peoples who are geographically and culturally closer to them. You see, the mission of the servant in Isaiah 42 continues to this day through his church. We want the remotest parts of the earth to hope in the servant, Jesus our Savior. We want churches to be strengthened. We want to come alongside churches in the Pacific Islands, in Cameroon, in other places, to continue to advance this great mission. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are continuing this today as the gospel advances further and further to the furthest parts of the earth. Michigan, Minnesota, Hawaii, Vanuatu, Samoa, Cameroon, and beyond. His great covenant promises are proclaimed to all the nations, and we proclaim them with the certainty that God will accomplish this great task by his great power. So we must continue to make disciples. We must continue to send new workers out from this place and from other places to the ends of the earth. So this remains our mission to this day. And we move forward with great hope and confidence. Now, now let me be clear. This doesn't mean that anything you attempt to do in missions is guaranteed to succeed. But what it does do is give us confidence that we can move forward in faith, knowing God will use our efforts to be a part of his overall work in bringing light to the nations. You see, if you are trusting in Jesus, you are called to be a part of this mission. The mission of the servant continues through his church. As you pray, as you send, as you give, as you go, we are all called to be a part of this great work of global missions. And we do it with the confidence that God will accomplish his purposes. So the question for you, if you are a follower of Jesus, the question for you is not whether God is calling you to be a part of this great mission, but it's how is God calling you to be a part of this great mission. John Piper likes to say that you have three options when it comes to global missions. You can send, you can go, you can, or you could disobey. So really just two options, <laughs> two faithful options. So I encourage you all to be considering, especially this week, as you focus on the great task of global missions, how is God calling you to be a part of it? How is God calling you as individuals? Kids, teenagers, how is God calling you to be a part of this great mission? Lead your families 
to be a part of this great mission. Faith Church, how is God calling you as a congregation to continue to be a part of this great mission? It will not fail. God will accomplish his purposes and redemption. And we get the joy of being a part of it to continue the mission of the servant. Praise God for his grace to us. Praise him for the way he calls us into this mission. And God, help us to be faithful. Let me pray for us.